In our morning services, we've been studying uh, the wilderness wanderings, as they are often called, in uh, the book of Numbers. Numbers being, in one way, somewhat of a, an off-putting book with all the details and the specifics of a mobilizing army and various laws and regulations that seem somewhat far removed, but we, we come in the midst of the book to rather striking and colorful narratives, some of the most striking and colorful in all of the Bible, really. It's interesting how in the desert, God can make the rose to blossom. Now, in the desert, we have the people of God who have been brought from bondage out of Egypt, and they're going now, having made a detour to Sinai, to receive the covenant, the Ten Commandments of God. And they have gone all the way from Sinai up to the very border of the land of Canaan to possess it, And God appointed 12 spies first to go in, to search out the land, to do some reconnaissance, and after 40 days to bring back the report. Well, they do that, and there is good news. It is a great land. Look at these these clusters of great... Have you ever seen anything like it? It's just, just shocking. But there are these cities... And they're walled all the way up to heaven. And the giants are there. And when we cocked our heads and looked up, we felt like grasshoppers before them. That's the language that they use. And this infects, this bad attitude infects the whole congregation. Observe, your bad attitude can infect others. Don't, don't infect others. But there were two of the twelve who believed. That was Joshua and Caleb. And they barely get out of the situation alive because the whole congregation is so convinced that they've got to get out of there, appoint a new leader, and go back to Egypt... Because it was better then. Funny how memory works. (laughs) Isn't it funny how your memory works? And really, isn't it not so funny how your memory works? Or doesn't work? And they take up stones to stone the messengers of the gospel. They're bringing the good news to these people. God has given us this land. We can do it with the Lord. Moses intercedes because God is about to destroy them all and make a new nation out of Moses. But Moses prevails with God. And God says, I forgive. That is to say, 
He is not going to execute the fierceness of his wrath. He's going to give this generation a lease on life for 40 years, but it's going to be on my terms. You're going to live 40 more years, but not in the land of promise. I'm turning you back. You're going to wander through the desert until body after body after body drops. And then your children are going to go in. The very ones that you were so worried about. But Caleb, my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, and has followed me fully. Him will I bring into the land whereinto he went, and his seed shall possess it. Well, in the midst of the desert, even the desert, tragically, of the people of God, and you know, you wouldn't think that. I mean, after all, isn't this the chosen nation? Yet for all practical purposes, it's a spiritual desert. But there is this rose that blossoms. And friends, it's not because Caleb was any different than anyone else. It's because grace had entered his heart. Or to use the terminology of our Lord Jesus Christ speaking to Nicodemus... Caleb had been born again. So for just a, just a few messages, we're uh, hovering over verse 24 uh, to consider the biblical teaching of regeneration as we observe uh, this phenomenon, this glorious phenomenon. And I... I hope and I pray that you have experienced it, and if not, that you would desire it desperately. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit, and he's followed me fully. Well, last week, we began with a kind of a working definition, perhaps a little uh, Paul-like in its length and complexity, but we're breaking it down in order to, uh, to, to study out the biblical truth because we are interested in looking at the entirety of Scripture and its witness concerning this subject through the the instance of heaven coming to earth in the rebirth of Caleb. So we're talking about the rebirth. We're talking about regeneration. What is it? It is that inner, spiritual, sovereign work of God in Christ by His Spirit. Where? In the hearts of the elect who are chosen of God. When? In his divinely appointed time. And in virtue of Christ's death and resurrection, by this rebirth, by what we are calling this regeneration, these chosen sinners, though wholly dead in trespasses and sins, 
Their whole beings are averse to God. They're set against God. Like the prodigal, they're running away. They're not running to God. They're running away from God. They're averse to his holy law. They don't want to submit to God's law. They want to call the shots. And they even reject not just the law of God, but the gospel of God. They don't even want the medicine. Caleb needs to be stoned. Isn't that exactly what they did to Jesus? He sends his son to save them, but they take up stones to kill him. The only reason that they don't carry that out is because God has ordained that he must die a different way. But at that moment of God's good pleasure, this sinner is instantaneously and radically transformed, spiritually resurrected, awakened from sleep under the gospel preaching, and so they are enabled spiritually and savingly to understand the mysteries of the gospel. They couldn't do that before, but they can do it now. They're able, they find themselves able actually to repent with godly repentance, not just to cry tears because they got in trouble. And they discover the rose of faith, the planting of the Lord in their hearts, so that they can entrust themselves wholly and sweetly into the infinitely capable hands of their Savior, Jesus Christ, for time and for eternity. Or to put it very briefly and succinctly, the rebirth, being born again, it's is God's making a hellish heart heavenly and heavenward? Well, that's a mouthful. So let's digest and process the teaching of Holy Scripture on this subject. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him and has followed me fully, We considered last time the author of regeneration, that is God, God the Father, Son, and in particular the Holy Spirit. The reason why Caleb had another spirit is not because he got it from mom and dad. What he got from mom and dad was a sinful nature. But he was born of God. We considered the subjects of regeneration, those who are actually reborn. They are the elect. Many are called, says Jesus, but few are chosen. Now let us consider the time or the timeline of regeneration. The time. It's in God's divinely appointed time. Not a minute before. Not a minute after. There are no lost opportunities with God. Praise His name. There's nothing that that gets in the way and derails 
God's plan? No, he was just not able to pull it off. How many, how many business opportunities are we still grumbling over? We lost that opportunity. I was just this close. I could even taste it. He was about ready to get the pen and sign on the dotted line. But no, it was not meant to be. All that the Father gives me, says Jesus, shall come to me. And he that comes to me, I will in no way cast out. So it's in his divinely appointed time. Now that time really begins in eternity. The rebirth, whether Caleb or Joshua, Abel, who had faith, whether it's Lydia, whose heart the Lord opened, it's the Lord's good pleasure from all eternity. And I think we have something that is at the very least suggested by the words that the Lord spoke to the prophet Jeremiah. Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. Before thou camest forth, before you came out of the womb, I sanctified thee and I ordained you a prophet unto the nations. Jeremiah, you didn't choose me. I chose you. Oh, that's the Old Testament, Pastor. Well, what does Jesus say? He says to his disciples, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you. Now, boys and girls, when Mama comes back from the hospital, And there's this rather loud, fussy, sometimes stinky little creature. Do you think that when she went to the hospital, it was like going to the store? And she sees, there, there's a nice baby. I'm going to go and I'm going to purchase that baby. And she puts down the money and then she collects it and brings it. You know that's not the case. You've seen mama's tummy going from flat to not so flat. And then at some point, Mama says, come here, put your hand right on my stomach, right there. What do you feel? Well, in a similar way, we need to understand that although the rebirth of the soul of a sinner happens at a particular moment and that it's instantaneous. It's an it's a opening of the eyes. It's a taking away of the heart of stone and putting in the heart of flesh. This is biblical language. That happens at a distinct and particular time in our own timeline and in the greater timeline of human history. But it was conceived in eternity. So we need to start there.
This is one of the most amazing things about grace. Why me? Why me? And I wasn't simply, uh, says the Christian, I wasn't simply persuasive. I wasn't persuasive at all. As though God was looking at a number of children that I could possibly adopt. And this one's better than that one. So I'll pick. God knew all about my heart. I didn't love him. I didn't fear him. I was doing what I wanted to. And he knew all of that in advance. And yet he loved me. I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's what God says of his people. All those whom the Father gives to the Son. Whom he did predestinate. Notice this chain here. Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. And that's not just the outward call of the gospel. That's that powerful, almighty call that like a... uh, can I use science fiction terminology, like a tractor beam that, that fastens on the object, on the, the other ship, and it draws it irresistibly. And that doesn't mean that when the believer is reborn that he's resisting, although sometimes, you know, C.S. Lewis said that God drew me kicking and screaming. But the sweet thing is that his call implants the sweetness and the love and the grace that softens so that I want to come. And so that I, I, I despise myself for even procrastinating. So Why haven't I done this before? That is the explanation of Caleb. And that is the explanation of every single Christian, every believer who has ever lived in this world. But my servant Caleb, because he had another spirit with him, and he followed me fully, that's why he believed. I mean, what else accounts What else accounts for the fact that he differed from the ten? Was it because he had just better moral DNA? That's not how Paul describes humanity in Romans chapter 3. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understands. There's none that seeks after God. Wait, wait just a moment, Paul. What about Caleb? He followed me fully. That's because I gave him another spirit. That's grace, friends. That's grace. Now let's move second. As we move down the timeline, really from eternity into time... And before we actually get to the particular conversions, maybe you can uh, envision 
the, all the different conversions like a, a, a stone skipping on the water. I, I saw a video recently of perhaps the most impressive instance of a man skipping a stone. I, if I was able to count, I'm sure it would have been at least 50 or 100. Well, so, along the timeline, down the stream of history, there are all these conversions. Sometimes they happen in groups, like Peter preaching to the Jerusalem sinners. And there are some people even who, who lived during times when it was, it was a, truly a revival. I'm, I'm convinced that maybe not on the scale of the first or second great awakening, but in the 1970s, there was a distinct movement of God. I know many people who came to personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ in the 1970s. Is that because there was something in the water? Now, friends, I'm all for sociology. But you have to factor in the act of God. This is a heavenly thing. This is something where heaven comes down to earth. But before we get to the point at which the stone touches the water at my conversion or your conversion or anyone else's until that very last one is gathered in and then the Lord Jesus Christ returns, let's slow things down just a bit because we need to look at another point in time that is absolutely decisive. And that is the cross and resurrection. Now follow me here, friends. The reason why our eyes are opened, well, yes, it's because we heard faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And yes, the reason why uh, our eyes were opened is because the Holy Spirit overcame all our resistance and put a sweet principle of surrender in our hearts. There's no other reason There's no other way to explain it. And yes, it's because ultimately in the council of peace in all eternity, not for any virtue in me, but he had mercy even before I was born. Before the children were born, Romans 9, neither having done any good or evil that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of him that works, but of him who calls. But without the cross and the resurrection, there is no new birth. Now follow me. Christ In order for us to be forgiven, Christ had to die. He had to die on a cross hanging between two thieves because your sins and mine are that bad. God is angry at you. He's angry at me until until we take his freely offered gift 
of his son who bled and died in the place of wicked sinners. And the only way that he can pay for us if he becomes our legal head. You see, he takes on the legal position of what the Bible, this isn't just a theological term, this is in Hebrews, the Bible calls him a surety. Judah reassures his father, listen, I'm going to bring... I'm going to bring Benjamin back, and if I don't, my life are his. I stand in their place. Now, if Jesus doesn't stand in our place and make the legal payment, we are lost. But there's more than that. Jesus is not just the legal head. He is what we might call the actual or the mystical head of his church. You see, He not just represents his people, he is actually uh, united to his people. Now, this is such a deep and a profound subject, but we have to address it because the Bible addresses it. By Jesus' death, his people die. This is what Paul says. For the love of Christ constrains us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then are all dead. Now, he's clearly not talking about physical death. What he's saying is that something happened at the cross that both paid for the sins of his people but it also dealt a death knell to the power of sin and death for his people. Think of it like this. Boys and girls, what part of Goliath's body died? Well, you say all of it. But where did it start? It started with that one stone hurled through the air and strikes him in the head. At that point, because the head is connected to the body, death enters the head and then death passes down to the body. This is a great mystery. But if you're a Christian, it's your mystery. And it may be difficult, but you should try to understand it because it's the explanation of your life, of your hope, of your happiness. In fact, if you're ever going to overcome sin in your life, you better learn this now. This is Romans 6. Listen, if we have been planted together, we, who's the we? Christians. We have been planted together in the likeness of his death. Verse 6, knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve 
sin. You see, our problem before the new birth is very, very manifold, very complicated, but one of them is the power of sin. I'm just enslaved to it. These lusts I can't break free. The bitterness, the envy. I'm just, I'm, I'm just a slave. And I, I, The motions of sins, Romans 7, which were by the law, did work in my members to bring forth fruit unto death. Friend, if you are not reborn, however polished you may look, you are a slave to sin. You are in bondage to it, and it will have you dead. But there's good news. The good news is that Jesus has died, and he has broken the power. He has broken the power of sin and death. Now, just because it doesn't instantaneously happen with every believer, that's, that doesn't minimize the reality. Any more than Goliath's toes went cold last meant that the body wasn't dead. By his resurrection, we are made alive. Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. Now, when do we first see the fruit of his death? When do we have the first fruits, the grapes of Eshkol? Well, we see it when the women went to the tomb. And Jesus wasn't there. Now fast forward and we see the full harvest at the resurrection when we all rise up out of our graves. But dear friends, there's a long span of history of the gathering of fruit. For the hour is coming, says Jesus, and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God, and they that hear shall live. And see, the force of that is the resurrection. Think of it like this. Bottom of the ninth. Base is loaded. Batter comes up to bat. He swings, and you hear a crack. And you know, sometimes, sometimes when you see it and you hear it, you just know. I don't even need to look. Well, yes, he's going to round the bases. You have to round the bases. But it's as good as done at that point. That's the force of the cross. If I be lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men unto me. We may not sing it in church, but there's something, uh, 
something good about the words of that old hymn. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. It has not only power to cancel my sins, it has power to free me from my sins. And if I've been planted together in the likeness of his death, I will be in the likeness of his resurrection. I live because of him. And in case anyone doubts, I think Peter clinches things in 1 Peter 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy, listen, has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He is risen. And every conversion of every sinner that the Father gives to him is his mystical body coming to life because he is the head. Brockle puts it this way. The power needed for our spiritual resurrection is inherent in the resurrection of Christ. Whatever the head experienced, the members must also experience. Since Christ the head has arisen, life-giving power flows unto all his members. Believers are engrafted into him as the trunk. And so they receive the sap and the life-giving power of Christ. Now make no mistake... No one is actually saved until they believe the gospel. Whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. None of this gets anyone off the hook for not personally repenting and believing now, nor should it discourage anyone. Oh, I don't know if I'm... That's, That's really none of your business at this point. Your business is, are you a sinner deserving of hell and is Christ a freely offered Savior? And when the Holy Spirit enters the heart and transforms it, then there is the response and one becomes actually spiritually united to the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. But the principle, the principle begins at the cross in the empty grave. Now, third and last, as we look at the timeline of the rebirth and the conversions that that come from that, that is the personal exercise of faith and repentance, let's briefly just consider uh, that All of these things happen fundamentally in the same way at all times. Even though we have the most information and detail about the the inner working of all of these things, the 
what is sometimes called the ordo salutis, the order of salvation. What's, what's going on under the hood spiritually, theologically, when I'm, when I'm being changed and when I'm coming to the Lord Jesus Christ? Paul, Paul especially has an awful lot to say about these things. But just because the Old Testament uh, doesn't speak in quite the same way doesn't mean that there weren't believers. Of course, there were all kinds of believers under the law in the Old Testament. Hebrews 11 makes that very clear. And if we know that faith, according to Ephesians 2, is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, and if we know it's the Holy Spirit who works uh, the, the, the new birth, then we understand Caleb. Now, under the law, the new birth and all other graces were largely confined to one nation. The Lord says to Israel through Ezekiel, Now, when I passed by thee and looked upon thee, behold, thy time was the time of love. He's looking on Israel. He's passing by the other nations. And I spread my skirt over thee and covered thy nakedness. Yea, I swear unto thee and entered into a covenant with thee, saith the Lord God, and you became mine. Then I washed you with water. Yea, I thoroughly washed away your blood from you and anointed you with oil. Now, not everyone, of course, we know was... Reborn, certainly not everyone in the New Testament church who confesses Christ is a new creature, although they may think that they are. It's a very tragic reality. Much of Hebrews, among other places, is dedicated to warning Christians. Don't just make assumptions. Because just as many did not enter the land then... Many will not enter the heavenly country now. Now they were born again and had faith, as many as were truly the Lord's. Through the the preaching of the word, and they also had various ordinances that were proper to the people of God in the Old Testament, the types and the shadows, the Passover lamb, the, all the different uh, things that, that have expired and are no longer a part of, of things today. And although the Spirit had not been poured out according to Joel 2, and as we have it fulfilled in Acts 2, we're not to think that the Spirit wasn't present. This was, if we can put it this way, this was the time of the early rain. Believers in the Old Testament had the Spirit of God. They just didn't have the Spirit of God in, in, in the degree and in the outward uh, blessings and, and, uh, and fullness. But under the gospel, 
The Lord poured out his spirit in a great and in a profound way, and in particular, the door of faith was opened to the Gentiles. In Acts 13.48, we read, And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. And that's, of course, because the Holy Spirit opened their hearts. Now, Israel has been blinded in part, we're taught, in the book of Romans, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in, and then all Israel shall be saved. So, when it comes to the the stone... Uh, skipping and touching the water. There, God has different ways, different times. He does things in uh, smaller scales, larger scales. There's a significant expansion of God's grace under the gospel. But it is, at the end of the day, Always the heavenly gift of God that anyone should believe because the new birth is not a New Testament doctrine only. Nicodemus, you're a teacher of the law and you don't know these things? That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. This is the state of mankind not just of Israel. Often we talk about Romans 1 and 2 as like the two barrels of a double-barreled shotgun. The Gentiles first are are, are condemned. All the Jews, you better not boast. You're just as sinful as well. So let no one boast. There is salvation only in the Lord. Now, when it comes to our own rebirth, we should understand that we are saved individually. We are saved uh, corporately, that is true, and we shouldn't miss that. The Bible often speaks about Uh, the rebirth and the transformation and uh, deliverance of God's people in the first person plural. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. But make no mistake, every single individual whom the Father has given to the Son, shall at the appointed hour be saved. Individually. And immediately, apart from any other effort by man. Paul says concerning himself, But when it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. Paul is saying, I had been set apart from the womb 
but there was a distinct and a particular moment. It is the Lord's good time. It has nothing to do, even though the Lord uses individuals to to share the gospel, to to read the Bible, maybe to to give a tract, or especially to come to church and hear gospel preach. God uses all these things. But don't think that it's a 2080 proposition, or a 1090, or a 595. It is all God. In fact, that is what is so striking, that God chooses the foolishness and the weakness. of What is a preacher? What is he? He's nothing. What is this, what is this voice? It goes out and just like a vapor, it just dissipates. Sixty minutes later, what what was it that he said? I mean, let's admit it. We don't all remember everything that's said. But the Lord, he chooses the foolishness, the weakness to show his power. You know, one of the things that you hear again and again is true and faithful preachers, not guys who think that they can engineer revivals. You can't engineer a revival. If you think you can, can, the Lord's going to humble you. But men who have actually lived through awakenings and lived through revivals, good men will say, I wasn't doing anything different. It's just the rain started falling. You see, God is absolutely sovereign. That doesn't mean that we're not responsible. We are responsible. And if we try to shift the blame just because we think we're good Calvinists, well, there may be and indeed are many Calvinists who are having to reckon with an angry God. But God, he is the one who makes everything beautiful in his time. Our forefathers used to like to use that language of Ezekiel 16, the moment of conversion being the time of love. The time of love. Well, as our time has expired, very briefly, as you wait on the conversion of friends, loved ones, maybe your own child, bide God's time. The wind blows where it wills. You cannot harness the wind. You can do it for a moment, but then it changes. That doesn't mean don't be passionate in your prayers. That doesn't mean continue living a godly life before them. That doesn't mean 
stop from time to time, pointing them to way, the way to Christ. But bide his time. Pry not behind the curtain. And if you have been visited and you remember your time, cherish that time. For many of us, it was a sweet time. For some of us, we find that it was a better time. And maybe we have left our first love. The Lord remembers. He remembers the day of espousals. But where are you? Where are you? If that glow is gone dim, seek to rekindle the sweetness of that time. And always seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Make no excuses saying, well, if I'm unconverted, there's nothing I can do about it. I don't know if I'm elect. I, there's nothing I can possibly do to change my circumstances. No. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Seek him. And if you seek him, you will find him. May God add his blessing to his name's praise. Amen. Please rise. Indeed, Lord, we have considered high things, and yet these are things that the Word of God teaches. May we learn, may we be reminded, may we be lifted up and helped, and oh God, we pray that the time of love would visit our land and our loved ones. And God, could it be that we would see it within our day? And we pray for any who have been in a state of backsliding, who perhaps are Christians but now uh, lose something of the sense of the love and the assurance. Oh God, we pray that they would seek the Lord and rediscover His grace. Receive us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.